start our time in God's Word with a word of prayer. Bow your heads with me, please. Oh, Father, thank you again for your love and your provision, your kindness. Gathered here today, Lord, knowing that your mercies are new every morning. We can rejoice in them. Even in the midst of great trial, temptation, even strife, Lord, we know that you are with us and we can rely on your word uh, to guide and sustain and empower us. So we turn to your word this morning. Uh, for that, we ask that you'd use it mightily in our midst to, to grow us, to nourish us and strengthen us to be godly men and women who love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <clears throat> All right, well, as your uh, bulletins would indicate this morning, there is uh, no particular uh, single text we will be expositing uh, today, which is definitely not uh, what I am accustomed to, but for our purposes and, again, the lesson uh, we will, I will present today, uh, you'll see why uh, pretty soon. But as Grant said, opening up the Word of the Lord, and uh, the text that I want to begin with this morning discusses that very thing. So, open your Bibles to 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 22. We will connect the dots. 1 Kings chapter 22. By this time in Israel's history, the kingdom of Israel, we see that the kingdom has been divided and war is broken out. Various alliances have been made. And where I want to begin this morning is chapter 22, start at verse 1. And please follow along as I read. 1 Kings 22, three years passed without war between Aram and Israel. In the third year, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, came down to the king of Israel. Now the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know that Ramoth-Gilead belongs to us, and we are still doing nothing to take it out of the hand of the king of Aram? And he said to Jehoshaphat, Will you go with me to battle at Ramoth-Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. I guess that means... That means, yes, we will go to battle with you. Moreover, Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, please inquire first for the word of the Lord. Now that is very key in here because um, even now, Israel is demonstrating a pattern within its kings of great wickedness. You'll, you'll learn a lot about the kings with an opening statement made about them, whether, whether they did right in the sight of the Lord or whether they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And some were very ambitious regarding the evil that they committed in the sight of the Lord. Of course, most famous among them is probably King Ahab of Israel. Very wicked. He did more to provoke the Lord of ang to anger than any of the kings before him. And so here we come up with Jehoshaphat talking to the king of Israel. And Jehoshaphat was a king who I believe feared the Lord, if I got my history correct. But notice he says, we should inquire of the Lord. That's his, that's, that's his go-to. That is a sign of a godly man. Let us inquire of the word of the Lord. But look at verse 6. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about 400 men. 400 men. You'd think that, boy, if they just got enough numbers, that surely the Lord would have nothing to say, but he'd resign his post or something. He said to them, Shall I go against Ramoth-Gilead to battle, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. These are prophets, pagan prophets, unbelieving prophets, 
who simply are telling the king what he wants to hear. Oh yeah, go up. It's, it's in your hands. You will win this battle. That's what these prophets say. And yet, verse 7, Jehoshaphat said, Is there not yet a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? See still, wait, the sign of a godly man. What does the Lord say about this? What does the Lord say about this impending battle? We'll not make a decision until this happens. And then the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him, because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. He is Micaiah, son of Imlah. (laughs) Right? I know, I know, I know someone here who's going to speak for the Lord, but he is not going to tell me what I want to hear. I hate this man because every time, every time I get a word from the Lord from him, it's all bad. It's never good. And of course, what should, a, what should Ahab expect? He does evil in the sight of the Lord, so if he inquires of the Lord, what does he expect to come his way? Probably bad news. And so if you go down a little bit, it turns out this prophet Micaiah shows up. And he says, look at, Look at verse 13. Then the messenger who went to summon Micaiah spoke to him, saying, Behold, now the words of the prophets are uniformly favorable to the king. Please let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. So you see, leading the witness here. Just, just agree with them, right? Just, just kowtow. Just buckle. Whatever the Lord has told you, just make sure that whatever you say agrees and comports with what these other 400 prophets say. Surely 400 prophets can't be wrong. Just agree with them. And then he says, as, as the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, I shall speak. And then, of course, the questions asked to him, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall we refrain? And he answered him, go up and succeed and the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. So, so in some sense, you just see Micaiah at first saying, okay, whatever, as if he's just being dismissive to the king. He's just telling the king what he wants to hear because the king spurns the word of the Lord. He doesn't want to hear the word of the Lord anyway. So it's almost as if initially... Micaiah tells him exactly what he wants to hear. Go up, you will succeed. But then the king responds, how many times must I adjure you to speak to me? Nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord. So even the king of Israel here, the wicked king is asking for it. Like, you're holding out on me. Tell me what's going on. Verse 17, so he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains like sheep which have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each of them return to his house in peace. And then, of course, the king says, That figures, didn't I tell you he was going to prophesy something evil upon me? Of course. When when pressed for the truth, Micaiah tells him the truth. And it's a hard truth. And I use this chunk of time as a lead-in for the very things we have to discuss in the next several weeks regarding the most precious institution of marriage. And marriage, as precious as, as it is, is one of those things, it's one of those institutions, it's one of those covenants where we have perhaps the hardest time receiving a word from the Lord. But there is no time like the present. How vital is it? How timely is it that we open up our ears? We have ears to hear regarding what the Lord has to say. So there is a word from the Lord today. And going forward in the next several weeks as we reopen our study in marriage, yes, many things will be said that will be difficult they may be hard to handle. You may be leaving here like someone get someone else other than Jonathan. I hate him because he's up here prophesying evil and not good. He's not telling me what I want to hear. But I do trust that what the Lord has to 
say from his word to us regarding marriage will be a blessing. Yes, it will be hard. Just like the church of Laodicea. It was hard to hear that they were poor and miserable and wretched and blind and naked, and yet they were hearing the trustworthy word of the Amen. The beginning of the creation of God, the one who always tells the truth and never lies. And so, we can trust in the Lord's good and truthful and faithful word as it regards marriage. And so we should open our ears and listen to it. So we're kind of jumping through, uh, through time a little bit. We, we introduced this subject of marriage via Sunday school, I believe starting in late November, late November or early December. And just to kind of get us up to speed without having to review everything in depth, and I would encourage you to go to um, Emmaus Road Media where those lessons should be posted. We've only done two of them. And really, we were going through some introductory material on marriage. And where we left off was a very important subject known as biblical headship. And it was there where we begin to discover God's framework for the marriage relationship, his very design, particularly the responsibility of, of the man. And it was interesting, even while I was standing up here, I saw an elbow or, an elbow or two thrown uh, in the rib cage because I was saying something provocative. But uh, that t- that's encouraging because it tells me that um, you're listening. And, and like I said, listening to the word of the Lord regarding marriage is so, is so vital. Um, but again, we, we want to understand uh, our, our divine calling in marriage as men, as women. And even before we talk about what the man does in marriage, we have to understand very clearly who the man is in the marriage. And this is narrowed down into one simple word, and that is headship. That is, man is the head of the wife. Both Colossians 1.18 and Ephesians 5.23 talk about this very thing with crystal clarity. But the man is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. So this relationship, of course, does not exist in a vacuum. This relationship of headship between a man and his beloved bride is meant to reflect Christ's headship over the church. Of course, this word head carries with it some very important connotations in both uh, Colossians and Ephesians. Of course, head refers not only to the source of life, and we would say, indeed, Christ is our source of life. There is no life without him, but even more so in the context of Christ's relationship to his church and the man's relationship to his wife, it speaks to this, uh, this issue of authority. As Christ is the command center for the rest of the body and his truth is dispersed to the rest of the members to guide and to power and sustain. We're, we are completely reliant on his authority. In the same way as Christ is the ruling head of his bride, the church, so is the man the ruling head of his wife. And I'm not getting any crooked looks back at me, but the fact is is that this is a very hard teaching to take. In spite of what we would claim as, as doctrinal purity, expositional preaching, both men and, both men and women really struggle with this positioning, with, this, with these roles, especially with the role of headship. Um, on one hand, headship can be rebelled against, and on the other hand, and I would say even more tragically, headship can be abused can be abused by the men, the, the man that wields um, in an ungodly fashion this issue of headship. But we are called to be the head of our wives uh, nonetheless. Um, so once again, if you need some more background on this, I encourage you to go to the, 
these previous two Sunday schools where we go over this, especially in a general umbrella-like fashion where we kind of introduce, where we introduce everything. So here's the thing. This is, men, this is primarily for you. And of course, I would uh, highly encourage wives to, to listen in because we are both accountable uh, to these important truths. So one of the more important things that we went over regarding biblical headship is this. Biblical headship is not something you do, men. It is something you are, right? It is not primarily a task you carry out. It is, it is an identity to be embraced. You are the head of your wife, whether you realize it or not. You are the head of your wife, whether you like it or not. You are the head of your wife, whether you're feeling it or not. You are the head. I go so far as to say, even if you abdicate your position, even if you have this roll over and die slash surrender type mentality toward any kind of conflict in your marriage, men, you are still the head of your household. Even if you abdicate your position, you remain the head. And of course, the fallout will be disastrous. So just recognize that reality. You are the head of your wife. And maybe we wonder, well, why do we keep emphasizing this? Why do we emphasize headship? I think sometimes we start out by blaming, I think there's three waves so far, three waves of feminism, which is what we typically blame, and we can blame it all day long, can shout it from the rooftops, but the fact is, is this dysfunction in culture, and especially the church, is due to men simply refusing to be men. And it's a hard truth. But I was thinking about a, passage in the Old Testament kind of related to the one in First, in, in first Kings. But it's like we're watching something in real time. And I'm reminded of this narrative in 2 Samuel chapter 3. And, it's, and, and, it, and it, involves a, uh, it involves a murder between a couple of uh, David's military commanders, between Abner and Joab. So, of course, Joab in 2 Samuel 3, he goes and he murders Abner. And word gets back to David. And David says something very interesting. So in verse 26, uh, you don't have to go there, but if you want to mark it down, it's it's very intriguing passage. It says this, when Joab came out from David, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the well of Sirah, but David did not know it. So when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the middle of the gate to speak with him privately, and there he struck him in the belly so that he died on account of the blood of, of Asahel, his brother. So Abner killed Joab's uh, brother earlier in the narrative, and this is uh, Joab taking some vengeance. Now listen to David's reaction. Afterward, when David heard it, he said, I and my kingdom are innocent before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall on the head of Joab and on all his brother's house, and may there not fail from the house of Joab one who has a discharge, or who is a leper, or takes hold of a distaff, or who falls by the sword, or who lacks bread. So that's quite a curse that David speaks upon Joab. That is what he hopes will happen to Joab and all of his descendants. Has a discharge, a leper. Note that those, those kinds of people are unclean. They're cut off from the assembly. That's quite a curse to call down on somebody. But know what he says here. He says, who takes hold of a distaff. And this phrase, otherwise translated as one who leans on a staff or holding a staff, implies may Joab's descendants be effeminate. May they be girly men. Sometimes dis, a distaff is translated as a spindle, which points to the work of a woman. May they never fail to lean on a spindle. 
So this is a tool for women's work. And overall, in the context, and I think this is important for us to grasp, is that what David is saying, too, is that may there never be one among Joab's family who is fit for war. May they never be fit for war. May they never be equipped and ready to go into battle. May they never truly be men. Because one of the one of the callings of a man is to defend, is to go fight wars, to protect. And we'll get to more on that um, in another study. But I think it points to something very disturbing, is that these are the kinds of men that are being raised in society today and even in the church, and that is our concern. We are raising men unfit for battle. We have a shortage of warriors, of godly warriors who are fit for the battle against principalities and powers and who are ready to take the sword of righteousness, the sword of the Spirit, and go into battle. Think about all the warriors we've had in the 20th century, even in the 21st century. We've had World War warriors. We've had Korean warriors. We've had Cold Warriors. We've had Vietnam warriors. We've had Desert Storm warriors. Today we have the keyboard warrior. The keyboard warrior who can run his mouth off because he is sitting somewhere, presumably, as is popularly thought, in his mom's basement or maybe his mother-in-law's basement. And he, and though he, and though he talks and types in big words, ultimately he is a coward because he's never willing, he'd never be willing to say that to someone's face. But this is the kind of man that is being produced today. And where are we to look? Where are we to look in order to overcome this? This is only part of the problem, and I think it goes much deeper than this. Deeper than this strange external androgyny that is typically expressed on the surface. This is, that is to say, this is more than blue hair, painted nails, skinny jeans, and otherwise effeminate behavior. Where men aren't acting like. And I think at the heart of this, at the heart of this culture war, is simply a hatred of man. A hatred of man as he was created in God's own image. Remember, the ungodly detest all things that are ultimately of God. And God created man in his image. And everywhere we see this image defaced and despised. And this is what men are taught. Men are taught from boyhood that they should despise themselves. That they should hate themselves. That they are merely dysfunctional girls who need to be more in touch with their feminine side and so be restored to participation in the natural order. See, it's more than just this alleged oppression upon women by men. And I'm not saying that's never happened. But I think it is exaggerated. It's more of an oppression upon women. It's more than reproductive rights. It's more than the demand to choose your own gender. It's even more than a, than a hatred of historical traditions and biblically ordained roles. I think at the heart of this is something so sinister and we often miss it. And it's in 1 Corinthians 11.7. It's in our scripture reading from this morning. In the context of, it's interesting, in the context of head coverings and headship, but don't miss this truth. For a man ought not to have his head covered since he is what? The image and the glory of God. Can you imagine a higher calling than that? To be the image and the glory of God, to be a glory bearer of Almighty God in righteousness and truth and holiness? What higher calling is there? 
So to be a man as God has created you, as He has intended you, is to bear His image faithfully and to reflect His glory. And of course, we've already talked about what that means to a degree. But Paul says here that man is the glory of God. And what more sinister way to try to rob God of His glory than to deface the created being meant to reflect that glory. And so, of course, the natural man, having been alienated from God, despises God's glory. So if he can deface himself to the point where he is barely recognizable, then neither is God's glory recognizable. That's what's going on. So we emphasize the man's role so much because manliness, masculinity, understood in its creational and biblical sense, is written off as wicked. Not just wicked, inherently wicked. Toxic, undesirable. I mean, when someone says toxic masculinity, I think most of the time they just mean masculinity. Just being a man, but especially in the biblical sense. is exactly how we want God's glory to be seen. We want it to be reflected in the godliness and leadership of man. So we see these lines as time goes on. I think we see these lines continually blurred by this abdication of men, abdication from leadership, from headship, where they surrender their authority, where they surrender their leadership, and where they surrender their strength. Just as Elrond once said to Gandalf, I was there when the strength of men failed. And so today, friends, we continue to see the strength of men fail. And our current situation, I would contend, would be irreversibly bleak and hopeless if not for Jesus Christ. You're wondering, where does the gospel come in here? Right here. Because as the strength of man fails, we still do have in Jesus Christ a man whose strength did not fail, a man whose righteousness was unassailable and whose faithfulness did not falter. When, when tested, the strength of our Lord Jesus Christ did not fail. And only in Him, only in Him and in light of His finished work in His death and resurrection, do we have hope of reclaiming big biblical masculinity and being faithful husbands. We look to Christ. We look to Christ alone so that we can finally faithfully lead. But that means hearing the Word of the Lord. That means inquiring of, from Him. And that means not only listening, but embracing and submitting to His revealed will as to what it means to be a husband, as to what it means to be a godly man read this headline. I didn't even get to read the article. So sometimes the headlines are enough, but uh, this, uh, maybe it's some supermarket rag, I don't know, but it's called the Globe and Mail, and of course it's a Canadian publication. Um, an opinion article entitled, It Seems Great to Be a Husband, So Why Can't Women Be Husbands Too? So, yes, we laugh, and, and that's something like that should be laughed at, because the absurdity is, is real, and yet this has found its way into the mainstream. And they seem to be increasing in regularity, even though they are absurd. And the goal is to treat statements like this with increasing normalcy, as if we've been missing this all along. You mean for the last several thousand years of recorded human history, this is the way it could have always been? 
women always could have been husbands too? And yet these questions are being asked. Why can't women be husbands too? Short answer, because God says so. Only men can be husbands. When men get married, guess what they become? They become husbands. Like it was created that way or something. And as much as a woman can try to be a husband and try to usurp that role, it is ultimately impossible. All that breeds is rebellion and dysfunction and misery. And of course, the only thing that can properly confront this godless thinking is the Word of God itself. Because once again, here we see voices trying to erase distinctions that are grounded not in culture, not even in natural law, but in creation itself. Remember? Male and female, God created them. As Andrew Sandlin quips, creational norms are not natural law. For for example, we can know that men and women are different by observing their bodies and behavior. Even Adam knew that when Eve was brought before him. But going on. But we cannot know why they are different apart from the Bible. That's very important because there are a lot of resources out there, pagan resources, attempting to reclaim masculinity, but reclaiming masculinity apart from the revelation of Scripture. And I would urge you Christian men, begin with God. Start with His Word. Before you, before and even hopefully at the expense of going to all these other gurus on masculinity, as Jehoshaphat said, is there a word from the Lord? Is there a word from the Lord to me? Absolutely there is. And we can only know and appreciate these differences from Scripture. God made man, not woman. to. So what I want to cover for the remainder of this morning is to expand our understanding of headship because we began talking about that several weeks ago. Um, and the man's role in the marriage union. And of course, wives must have a firm grasp on this as well, of this high calling uh, upon your man in this relationship. Um, so we're going to continue breaking this down. We've talked about what headship means in the past, but today I primarily want to answer the question of, well, what does headship looks look like, right? We talk about headship, right? We can talk about the Greek words and stuff, but again, what does headship entail? And I want to cover primarily, I think I came up with four, four total. I just don't want to move any further in our understanding of marriage, especially the role of the husband, without understanding the gravity of this solemn and sacred uh, position and calling. And I want to also remind you, think of how each of these things regarding headship reveals Christ. Think of how, think of how the Lord Jesus um, expresses His love and goodness in each of these cases. And these are some strong words, but once again, this is what the Lord says, and so we will embrace by faith what He says and trust His Word to guide us. And and I'm assuming there will probably be many questions to follow, so uh, don't hesitate to ask, just not during the sermon. Okay, first, first thing. Headship means... Dominance. Yes. Headship means dominance. Well, let's understand how that refers to Christ first. Christ dominates His church. Sometimes we don't think of that. We think of, you know, the the humble, lowly, effeminate 
leader of the church, Christ, who wouldn't hurt a fly. But no, Christ dominates. Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, and He exercises all dominion and authority in heaven and on earth. We know that from Matthew 28. It's all been handed over to Him. It is unquestionable. Jesus Christ has all authority. He is the boss. He rules everything. He is the dominator. We can understand this in at least a couple of ways. Once again, I know that the word dominance kind of carries with it a negative connotation to it. Well, stop it. Christ has all dominion, and that is something worth rejoicing over. He has all dominion. Typically, we think of it as attached to some kind of tyrannical rule. And of course, that can happen. But this is why we learn from the Scriptures to avoid that. So we exercise as men this dominance in marriage in a godly fashion. So of course, what does domination mean? Dominance or governance speaks to the husband's position, his role as the governor, the governor of his marriage, the governor within his marriage and his family. And of course, what this means very simply is that he is the one in, endowed with charge over his family. He has authority on loan from God within his marriage. And of course, we know this, we know this from the beginning, right? Even after the fall, it was made very clear that the woman would desire or be desirous of her husband. Some people think that it was desirous of his position. But he also says uh, to, the, to, to the woman that your husband will rule over you. And there are many, there's many discussions, there's many disagreements as to what exactly that means. But I think the clearest one is that that, is, that denotes a position of, of headship and authority within the marital union. Paul will say that the, the man was created first and then the woman... Which is in which he is he is uh, emphasizing this role of head headship placed upon the man. Of course, we say, well, within any marriage, what happens if the man refuses to exercise dominion in his marriage? What happens if he refuses to govern? Well, as we've already covered, he may abdicate the role, but he's still head. He's still governor. And so what do we find? This is very helpful. If you guys haven't read the book Reforming Marriage by Doug Wilson, very helpful uh, analysis, a brief analysis on, on dominance. But he said something will dominate your marriage. But that domination will be mediated through the husband. So if the husband dominates with grace, your marriage will be blessed. Your marriage and your family life will be a gracious one. If your husband dominates with tyranny or with absence, then those things will dominate the household. That will characterize the household. And that's to the second thing. That's the other sense in which the man dominates his house. In that, he characterizes or permeates. And what this simply means is, so go, as goes the man, so will go his household. His household, meaning his wife, his children, sort of the atmosphere in the house, the, up, the, the, the raising of, up of a family, will reflect, will be characterized by, by who he is. So if, if a man is, if a man claims Christ and yet rejects Christ and the rule over his household, he will raise his home hypocritically. There will be, his, his house will be dominated by hypocrisy. And hypocrisy will come to characterize his household. You know, this sort of, an example of this is the classic do as I say, not as I do uh, mentality, which is just the height of foolishness. It is the height of spiritual pride for, uh, for, for the spiritual head of his household to say, you don't need to follow my example, just obey what I say. 
And the fact is, is that your wife and your children are observing you. They're going to do what you do. So if they, if you are a hypocrite, they are going to be hypocrites. If you are proud, they are going to be proud as well. If you are rebellious against the Lord, you will raise them to be rebellious against the Lord because as we know, actions speak louder than words and you can say and say and say and talk and talk and talk, but the fruit will be bad fruit. Their response to your talking will be merely that. You, you are all talk and you have, but you have no idea what you're saying. All I see is your example. You say this, but you do otherwise. And I've observed that. And your constant example, dad, is that that is okay. Your actions are reflecting the true disposition of your heart. And so that, the man's heart, his disposition toward God will permeate and characterize his house. It will basically, in thread-like fashion, work its way and and affect every area of the household. So once again, men, your household and your marriage will be dominated by something. Something is always dominant. There is no such thing as shared power. Ultimately, only one person has the authority. Authority falls to one. So just like Christ's relationship to His church, right? authority falls to one person, and that is the Lord Jesus. And He governs with perfect righteousness. He governs with perfect justice. There is nothing out of His sight. There is nothing that He fails to notice. So in the same way as we exercise governance or dominance over our household, we are aware of what is going on in our household. We have knowledge of what is happening in our household. Our eyes are upon our household. It's impossible to govern without knowledge. But your household will be a reflection or a display of your own spiritual condition. So what will that be, men? Will it be righteousness, wisdom, truth, goodness? Will that dominate your household? Or will it be absence, passivity, or in some worse cases, brutality? You can't get them under control, so you resort to more tyrannical means. As Wilson concludes, nevertheless, the dominance of the husband is a fact. The only choice we have in this regard concerns whether that dominance concerns whether that dominance will be a loving and constructive dominion or hateful and destructive tyranny. Let those words rest on your hearts, men. Secondly, not only does it mean governance or dominance, but it means leadership. This will flow out of your authority. If you have the authority, then you are called to lead. The onus is on you. Can't look to the right or the left or your in your family, men. Do not abdicate and put the leadership role on your wife. That is yours. You are called to lead your wife. And where do we see that example most exemplified in Christ? Well, the fact that He is our good shepherd. He is our good shepherd. He is our strong shepherd. You want a picture of Christ? Read Psalm 23. Read John chapter 10. Christ is the good shepherd. And He cares for us. He watches over our souls. He takes care of our needs. He leads us beside the still waters, right? With Psalm 20, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me along the path of righteousness for His name's sake. I mean, think of all that is contained in those opening verses. Right? All that provision, all that blessedness, all that grace, that is Jesus leading us 
shepherding us with all of his sovereign grace and power. And then it gets even better if you read Psalm 23. It says, even though, or like the KJV, yay, yay, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Sounds scary, right? But what, is, what does he say? I will fear no evil, for you are with me. That husbands would be like Jesus in that regard so that their families would not fear evil. That the, that the husband would have the mind of Christ in that regard to protect and guard their family and even to lead them through the difficult issues and scenarios of life. Because they're going to happen. To most of us, they're probably occurring right now. And so, husband, this is the time to be a man, to gird your loins, to take up your rod and staff and comfort your family and not leave it to someone else. Not to your wife, not to your kids, not to your favorite preacher. It falls on you. The responsibility is on you. And of course, you may say, oh, this is beyond me. I, I don't, I, this is beyond my skill. This is beyond my strength. Absolutely. That is true. It's beyond you. But the Lord gives us his Holy Spirit to empower us and equip us to that end, to be faithful leaders in our family. Though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil. Why? Because the Lord is with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort you. I mean, what, what provision, what consolation is that in the midst of the trials of life that men would be like Jesus in that regard and shepherd their families? So we lead. I wanted to break this down a little bit, um, just kind of how we lead. And of course, I would encourage you to add to this list. But let's get kind of specific here. We lead them in knowledge. That's the first thing. We've talked about the blight of biblical illiteracy among men. That men simply don't know their Bibles. So they can't lead. You want to lead them in the knowledge of the Lord? You have to know the Word of the Lord. you got to lead them in knowledge. This is an intimate kind of knowledge you need. And this kind of comes from governance, right? Being watchful over your families. You know the Word of God. So you know also their weaknesses. This man, this you must know your wife's weaknesses. And most terrifying of all, sometimes you are going to need to point those weaknesses out. You're going to have to say something. You're going to have to speak the truth in love. Lead them in knowledge. Know their weaknesses, their strengths, so you can encourage them to serve. Serve in their high calling as women. Know their struggles. Know their fears. But whatever you do, don't be aloof. Don't be an ignoramus when it comes to your wife. Make sure she's more than just a roommate with some benefits attached to it. Know your wife, love your wife, lead your wife. Know who your wife is. Lead your family also in the truth. You lead with knowledge, but then of course, you, you start, you, you know what your wife is going through, you know what your kids are going through. Okay, well, how do we, how, how do we remedy that? How do we speak to that? How do, we, how do we guide them in that? Well, you lead them in the truth. This, of course, begins simply with sound doctrine. Right? Doctrine that leads to holiness. Doctrine that leads to sanctification. Teaching them the word of the Lord. Teaching them as you walk by the wayside. In every opportunity you have, speak the truth to them. Open up to them God's revealed word. Raise them, said this before, Raise your family, especially your kids. Raise them as Christians in the faith that they will become Christians. I was listening to an interesting, just a part of a sermon by Joel Webbin. 
And he was saying how, you know, there's a reason that God did not give your kids to your pagan neighbor who are going to raise your kids as pagans. He gave them to you, Christians, so you can raise your kids as Christians. I do believe sometimes we get caught in this trap of only speaking speaking about how depraved our kids are. And even though that may be true in their unbelief, we still want to focus them on the saving power of the gospel. Raise your kids as believers, even if they haven't expressed unbelief. Expose them to the Lordship of Christ and His Word, that it is binding, that they are to trust Him, that they are to obey Him, even if they don't feel like it. But the Word of the Lord still is binding. But know the Word. Be able to reason. See, there's more than just the sound doctrine. There's also the wisdom that comes with it. Being able to reason from the Scriptures so that those entrusted to your spiritual care can take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. See, you will find men that counseling your family, whether it's your kids or your wife, is more than just throwing Bible verses at them. It's knowing God's Word enough to see how those Scriptures apply, to be able to reason with them from the Scriptures. Reason with them from chapter and verse to show them how it impacts their thinking, how it changes their mind, how it comports with godliness, how it changes their hearts. That takes study. It takes commitment. Constant refreshment. Here's another thing in which we lead them. I think this is a big one. Good question. Good question to think about today. Outside of Lord's Day worship, men, how often do you sing with your kids? How often do you sing with your kids or sing to your kids? We, we best remember things when they're often sung to us. We remember the rhythm, right? We remember the melody. There, there, there's, it, it's conducive to, 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 to things sticking in our mind. And the point of this is you lead your kids in worship. Your kids should be able to gather a solid idea of what God is like by watching you worship. And I would say the, the, the most fundamental part of that, of course, is Lord's Day worship. That's exactly why we're family integrated, among, among other reasons. But I think chief among those is we believe that it is important that during Lord's Day worship, corporate worship, that we do not take kids away from their parents because kids need to see what, what their parents' worship is like. When they look at you, are you simply staring at the words on the screen? Are you singing in monotone? Are you singing in F flat? You know, Or are you making a joyful shout to the Lord? Do they see exuberance and gladness of heart when you sing praises to God? That's part of leading them in worship. And man, above, I mean, you talk about when it comes to just brass tacks here. What are we raising our kids to be? We are raising them to be worshipers of Jesus Christ. True worshipers. And, incidentally, along with that, we are leading our wives in that act as well. So men, we should not be, far be it from us, to be the curmudgeon ones who are sitting there with our hands at our side, just kind of staring blankly at the screen. If we are truly redeemed, what does it say? Let the redeemed of the Lord say so! Let the redeemed of the Lord sing so. 
And may your wives and your kids see that joy expressed in worship. You lead them in worship. They're going to know what God is like by the way you worship. Also, lead them in wisdom. We got caught up on that one for a while. Lead them in wisdom. This goes along with knowledge and truth. But the thing is, is show them that you fear the Lord. The beginning of wisdom is what? The The fear of the Lord. And then later on in Proverbs it says, acquire wisdom. But when your family sees you, when your wife sees you, especially, does she, does, see, does she see a man who fears God and who clings to God and who walks with God? A wise man who is thoughtful, who considers truth and applies it well. Be a man who fears God and shuns evil and pursues holiness. Lead them through conflict. What does this mean? You, man, must be the peacemaker in your family. You must be the peacemaker in your family. Even if it was your wife's fault. Go out, a limb and, go out on a limb and say that. Even if you are the offended party, as leader of your household, as the head of your household, you must pursue peace. Don't leave. You know, don't give her the silent treatment. Don't let her see by your countenance how upset and angry you are and leave her to figure it out on her own. No, you be the one who pursues peace. You bring the olive branch. You reiterate your love and devotion to her and to your marriage and together to your God. But don't leave that up to her. Do not abdicate in that way. You seek peace. You make peace with your family. And when tough times come, don't wilt and let someone else do the dirty work. Once again, prepare yourself like a man. Seek the Lord in prayer and in His Word. And then you speak grace and truth to your wife and family and restore peace to your household. Yes, this is a labor of love. This probably isn't accomplished in one conversation. But that is our pursuit as men. That's what makes us men. is We are peacemakers. Finally, lead them in direction. What does this mean? Oh yes, so this is the hard one. Men, ultimately, as a leader, you make the decisions. You are the decision maker. You chart that path for your family. And you will make many decisions. And of course, you know, you can talk about things and you can give preference to your wife. I'm, I'm, I mean things beyond just, hey honey, where should we go to dinner? Italian? No? Maybe that new sushi place off Briargate? Yeah, you know, that, that, that's giving preference in, in a spirit of love. I understand that. But when it comes especially to the big decisions, especially spiritual decisions, financial decisions, right? Even sometimes geographical decisions. Where are we moving next? Church decisions? That can be a big one. That can be a pitfall for many men. Especially if, if his beloved wife wants to dig her heels in and wants to go to that other church. It's hard to stand your ground. And yet we are called to lead our wives directionally. Lead our families in decision. And of course that does mean, that doesn't mean absence of counsel. Proverbs 15.22 says, without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors they succeed. Yes, listen to your wife's counsel. And sometimes you may need to heed your wife's counsel because her idea is better than yours. And God uses that to bless both of you. But in the end, you are responsible for making that decision. And there will be times where you will have to make that final call. But good decisions come from knowledge, 
truth, wisdom, commitment to the Lord, and He will guide your path. So that's leadership. It's a tall order, but we are called to lead as men. Thirdly, headship means representation. I love this one. We know Jesus as our representative, right? How does He represent us? He's our great high priest, right? He pleads our case. We have an advocate with the Father, we learn from 1 John 2. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, He speaks for us. We have a man, a glorified God-man who speaks for us and who represents us on our behalf before the Father so that we can continue to reap all the grace and mercy of Christ's work. He continues to do a work for us in His role as our great high priest. And of course, this is related to His covenant love for us. That in covenant, in the provisions of the new covenant, Jesus takes responsibility for us. He represents us as our covenant head. If you haven't listened, there's this great series on marriage by Toby Sumter. It's called No Mere Mortals. I highly commend that to you. It's been a, it's been a blessing, especially listening to it this week. But he makes a lot of uh, great observations. But, but he links that representation with responsibility. That as we represent our families, we are not meant to represent them in the sense where we're just winging it, we're shooting from the hip. That our representation of our families is something that is prepared. It involves, and of course, representation involves speaking. It involves talking. And we may be in a marriage where our wives have better natural speaking abilities than us. I'm in one of those myself. But I am still charged by God to be the representative, the spokesperson, if you will, of my marriage and of my family. So we're called to speak for our and exercise leadership in that way. Sumter says a good representative speaks for his people well because he has led his people. That is, if we want to be faithful representatives of our wives and families, we live in a certain way. And that means, of course, a certain way toward the ones we love. But first and foremost, we understand that this representation is covenantally connected and, and works itself out in a variety of ways. Works itself, itself out before others. I think the best example of this is from Joshua 24:15. Joshua says that if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. This is not a proof text for free will. Listen to what Joshua is saying. Whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose lands you are living, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, are we to imagine that Joshua went to all of his household? Think about it. Joshua is over a hundred years old at this point. He's probably seeing his children to the fifth or sixth generation. So he is speaking for probably hundreds of people right now. As for me and my household, composed of hundreds of people, hundreds of my offspring, we will serve the Lord. You think he went to every single one of them and asked what their opinion was? especially when idolatry is still rampant within Israel? No, he spoke as their representative head, as head of his house. You know what? The rest of you, you serve this day, right? You choose this day whom you will serve. And it might be an idol, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And men, how should we speak for our household? That this is our resolve. This is our commitment. But that represents a commitment from you as head of your household that you will raise your family in the fear and admonition of the Lord. You will never quit 
encouraging them to serve and love the Lord, exhorting them with the very authority of the Scripture itself that it is the Lord Christ whom we serve and not some other foreign God. Think very importantly here. We, you know, we represent our we represent our families before others, but we also represent um, represent our wife and family uh, before before God, right? Before God, before man. So let's start with not just before others, like the assembly, like Joshua did, but let's also consider how we represent God to our families. Okay. So one of our keystone texts in this entire study comes from Ephesians five twenty three where Paul says the, head, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ also is the head of the church. And what that means is that marriage, your marriage, is always going to be saying something about Jesus. That is the inescapable reality of marriage. So, men in the room, how you treat your wife is going to say something about Jesus. That is, you, are ne- you never stop talking about Jesus Christ in your marriage. I would even say even the atheist, even the unbeliever, because marriage is is from creation. It's sanctioned by God. God is even witness of the most pagan marriage. He is and because marriage reflects Christ's relationship to his church, you are always saying something about Jesus. If you leave with one thing here from here this morning, leave with that. You are always saying something about Jesus to your wife and to your family. And so it follows that if you as a husband are harsh and domineering, what are you saying about Jesus? That he is harsh and domineering. What if, what if it's the opposite, right? We often swing from the, both sides of the pendulum where we try to be macho and domineering and brutal or we're passive and weak. What are we saying about Jesus if we're passive and weak? We're saying that, we're saying he's passive and weak. The husband is an effeminate abdicator, what are we saying about Jesus? Rick, really think about this. Because you're always communicating something about Christ to your family. Oh, what if, you're, what if your husband is selfish? What if he's silent? What if he just doesn't talk? What if he has nothing to say? It's false humility. That's what it is. The man should speak. He should speak the truth. But if the man doesn't speak to his family, what are we saying about Jesus? He's silent. He doesn't speak to his people. He doesn't care for his people. If the husband is lazy and doesn't provide, what are we saying about Jesus? We're saying that he's lazy and doesn't provide. He's not a good shepherd. He's an idle shepherd, a hired hand at best. If worse comes to worse and the husband abandons the relationship or the husband is unfaithful, we're saying that Jesus is an adulterer and abandons his people. More on this in the book Reforming Marriage. But we find that Jesus is none of these things. We don't want to be any of these things, men. But just keep that in mind. We're always saying something about Christ. And we, and we want to be like Jesus. We want to be a faithful representative of our family. We want to represent Him well to our family. We want to represent our families well before, before the Lord as well. Moving on. Uh, fourthly and finally, headship means responsibility. I think all of what we've been going through today points to this very reality. Headship means responsibility. There's no 
There's no authority, right? There's no authority without responsibility. You've been given authority in your household, and with that comes responsibility, a responsibility unique to you as a husband. Yes, this is a hard job, but you are called to do it. Once again, drawing from uh, Toby Sumter, he says, the right to command means the liability for disaster. So you're the captain of the ship, right? If you're the captain of the Titanic, and you're not at the wheel, and your first mate hits the iceberg, guess who's responsible? The captain. Even though you may have been sleeping at the time, you're responsible. If your kid leaves the door open at night and a robber breaks in, you're still responsible for the safety of your family. Adam was responsible for Eve, his wife. Even if it was her fault that she was deceived, she was still Adam's responsibility. And so men, you are responsible for the well-being of your family in every sense. It's reminded of the story of uh, Soli Sullenberger III. You guys are familiar with that. He was the one who uh, piloted the U.S. Airways flight 1549 that he subsequently landed in the Hudson River in 2009. The plane was disabled in a bird strike. That wasn't Captain Sullenberger's fault, was it? And yet, the onus was on him to keep the passengers from dying. And he did that well. Not a single person died. There was not one single casualty. There was injury. But no one died in the landing on the river, on the Hudson River. It's amazing. An amazing feat of taking responsibility, taking the lives of others into your hands and delivering them. Getting them to safety. That we would, as men, would see our responsibility in such a way that keeps us from casting blame. That says, yes, maybe this was not my directly my fault, but I take responsibility for it. And the beauty of this is reflected in Christ's sacrifice for us. Talk about Him representing us as our high priest, but what did He do? He took responsibility for our sins. He took our sins upon Himself. Once again, from no mere mortals, it said that if any man had the right to blame us, it was Christ. If anyone had a right, authority to point the finger at people, it was Jesus. Sinless, perfectly righteous. But it says that instead of that, He laid upon Himself, or the, the Lord laid upon Him, the iniquity of us all. For all of us. Christ died for sinners once for all, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God. We are His people. We are His precious elect. And so He takes responsibility for our well-being. This is also connected in some sense. I'm thinking, I'm thinking of Job and he how He took responsibility for His family as well. And I think this is a way in which we could say this is connected to representation, right? Job was a faithful representative of his, of his family in that he, he offered sacrifices for them. But also in that was a taking upon himself of responsibility. It says there was no man like Job. Right? He was blameless, upright. And you know what he would do? He would get up in the morning. Opening chapter, you can read it there. And he would offer sacrifices for his sons and daughters. Why? Maybe one of them blasphemed. Maybe one of them spoke a word against the Lord. And, he, and as head of his family... He didn't leave that up to his kids or his wife. He said, no, I'm taking responsibility for them and I am going to go as the federal head of my family 
and sacrifice to the Lord. I will intercede. Right. That's how we take responsibility. A great way in which responsibility is exemplified is in our intercession. And it says that when Job offered these sacrifices, he did thus continually. Right? We're so noncommittal sometimes. We do something so intermittently. I'll pray for my wife, I'll pray for, pray for my family, I do it once, and then months or even years go by, and you've never interceded for them. That is godless to be prayerless. How can we claim to love our families and take responsibility for them if we do not intercede for them? But may we be those men who continually go to the Lord, not presuming upon the condition of our wives or our children's hearts, and say, Lord, please be patient with them. Give mercy to them. Continue to change their hearts so that they will love you and not blaspheme, but speak the truth and worship you in spirit and in truth. See, that's faithful representation, but that ultimately is taking responsibility for your family, similar to how Christ has taken responsibility for His church. And that, and that is just... I think that really is expressed well in the act of prayer. I mean, men, to lead, to lead well, to, to take responsibility, is to always be at the foot of the cross, is to always bring the well-being of your family and prevail upon the grace of the Lord. You know, we talked about importunity, right? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. May we show the same urgency when we go to prayer and prevail upon the goodness of God for our family. That's how we take responsibility. And the thing is, that's the reality. The responsibility is yours. Do not abdicate that responsibility. Do not give that responsibility to someone else. As the man of your household, as the federal head of your family, that is your calling. It is to be responsible. It is to represent. It is to lead. It is to govern. All of those things in light of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so as His Spirit empowers us, may we not shirk away from that duty just because things get hard. Right? May we not be like Joab's descendants who lean against the staff, who are never prepared for war, who are always retreating and always making excuses. Guys, the Holy Spirit has made us equal to the task. So let's step up and be men. And lead our families well. And lead them faithfully as Christ has led His church. Well, Father, thank You again uh, for your, your kindness, Your love, Your provision to us. So much we've uh, been able to cover today and, and so much to think about. But I, I pray, God, that, that the things said today from Your Word would be impressed upon the men. Um, that we would be faithful heads. That this is how You've called us. No matter where we find ourselves with the, with the issues and difficulties and even the glories of this life, um, you have appointed us to this task. We are, we, we are the head of our families, whether we like it or not. And I pray that we would, we would like it, that we would love it, that we would embrace it, knowing, Lord, that a faithful man has gone before us and has executed all of this perfectly with grace and power, this, this governance, this leadership, this representation, this perfect representation, as well as the responsibility that is carried out. I want to thank you again for also all the, the faithful 
men who have taught on this and the, and the abundance of good resources, and I'm indebted to them. But ultimately, Lord, we are indebted to your word. We are bound to it, and we desire to obey. But Lord, we don't want to, we don't want to obey faithlessly. We want to hear your word and delight in it and, and, and walk in it and, and rejoice in, in the perfect commandment that you have given us, that we may truly be men of God uh, who faithfully lead and love our families. We continue this study, Lord, may our, may our question constantly be, is there any word from the Lord on this? Say yes, there is, and have the light of Scripture to guide us in truth. So with that, Lord, we commit the rest of our time of worship to you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.